0: When you think of Christmas, what are some of the images that typically come to your mind? Uh, I could, could maybe ask it like this: When you decorate for Christmas, what are some of the things that you pull out of the attic and place all around your house? Uh, I love Christmas trees. When we when we lived in New England, we would family tradition we would go out the Saturday after Thanksgiving and we would go typically with snow on the ground, and we would cut down our own tree and then have hot cocoa, and we tried to do that when we moved to Texas, and it wasn't nearly as fun, and the trees were a lot uglier and a lot more expensive. And so we've lost that particular tradition, but I still love Christmas trees. I just, I think they're great. Well, what are some other images of Christmas that you think of? Maybe wreaths? People talk about silver bells, I was over at a friend's house the other night and had this, like, village of these little houses, and I, I don't know. I've always liked those, right? They're just… I, they just say Christmas to me. What about some of the biblical imagery? I trust some of you have manger scenes that you put out this time of year we think of light. You know, people put lights on their house. We don't always think about that as a Christmas symbol, but it is, and it is a great Christmas symbol. The light, the true light breaking into a dark world. How about a young Mary holding a baby? Wise men, shepherds, donkeys, camels. But what about a horn? What what about a horn? I wonder how many of us have a great big horn displayed somewhere prominently for Christmas. And I'm, I'm not thinking in terms of a musical instrument like a French horn or a trumpet. I'm talking about an ox horn or the horn of a great big ram, right? When you think of Christmas symbols, is that one that comes to mind? Well, perhaps after we consider this text… Together you might go out and buy one or three of these and prominently display them among your house. It would certainly open the door for some gospel conversations this Christmas season. Let's jump into the text to see what I'm talking about. Turn if you're not there to Luke chapter 1, Luke chapter 1, again we're going to be working through the passage that I just read, but before we get into the passage and the imagery itself. We need to quickly go back to the beginning of Luke's gospel, because this particular song of the nativity is Zechariah's song. And it begins all the way back in chapter 1, verse 5. There we see that Zechariah was a priest in the priestly line of Levi, and he's married to Elizabeth, who's also of the same line, and both of them, we're told, are very old. How old? We don't know, but well past childbearing years, and they have no children. Because we're told Elizabeth was barren. And so, one day, Zechariah's division is, is chosen to be on duty, and he's serving in the temple, and the angel Gabriel came and stood beside him. And he's frightened. And, 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 and that makes sense, because angels in Scriptures are not petite, beautiful women with wings, like so often we see depicted, but they are large, powerful warriors of light. And Zechariah is afraid, right? But the angel Gabriel tells him, don't fear, your prayer has been heard. Now, what prayer? We, we, we don't know, but… We can be all but certain he was not in there praying for a son, okay? His wife is well past childbearing years, and when a priest would enter into the temple of the Most High God, it would not be common for them to pray for themselves, except maybe, Lord, please forgive me for my sins. No, typically what's on the prayer guide for the priest is to pray for the nation of Israel, specifically for the redemption of Israel, praying that God would fulfill His promises would have been the norm. And that's probably what Zechariah was praying for, and thus that's probably the prayer that was heard, which would make sense with the rest of Luke chapters 1 through 2. And so here Gabriel says, Zechariah, your prayer's been heard, and your barren wife Elizabeth is going to give birth to a son, specifically a son who will prepare the way for the Christ, for the Messiah, and you will call His name John, which means Jehovah has been gracious, certainly fitting for all that's about to happen. No, to no one's surprise, especially if you really consider what's going on here, Zechariah comes up for air, right? This is the wait, what moment of the whole thing? He, here he says, oh, how, how do I know that this is true? I'm, I'm an old man, and my wife is, well, she's wonderful, but she's old, well, different from Mary's questions that we looked at a couple of weeks ago, Zechariah's questions here actually display a lack of faith. Now, that's clear from Gabriel's response in the text. Gabriel says, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and was sent to speak to you and bring this good news, and behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until these things take place because… here's the lack of faith… because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their time. And so, Zechariah leaves the temple. He can't talk, right? People realize that he saw some sort of vision. He's doing hand gestures. I mean, he's trying to help people understand that something's going on, but, but he couldn't speak. In fact, given that later when you look at the fulfillment of all of this, that people are actually signing to him as well, it would seem that not only could he not speak, he probably couldn't hear either. Well, Apparently, he goes home in this state, somehow woos his wife, sleeps with his aged wife, and she conceives and goes into hiding. All the while, Zechariah remains in this deaf and dumb state the entire duration of the pregnancy. Elizabeth, on her part, goes through the pregnancy, even getting a visit from Mary in the sixth month. And we're told that at the entrance of Mary, who at that point is carrying Jesus, we're told that Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit and that John even leaps for joy in in her womb. I mean, these are amazing things, right? Then when the time comes, the child is born, and Elizabeth gives birth to a son, yet another in a long and very important line throughout the Scriptures of barren women in the Bible giving birth to important sons. And this was obviously a big deal. The text goes on to tell us that her neighbors and family, they come all, they all come out. They're rejoicing with them, to, rejoicing that God had shown such mercy that she'd have a son in her old age. They, they rally around her trying to be helpful, although we all know sometimes people try to be helpful. They're they're, they're not. And so, on the eighth day, according to this custom, they, they gather together to circumcise the child and to name the child. And to every single person present, with the exception of Elizabeth and Zechariah, they're all assuming this kid's name would be Zechariah. I mean, that's just how you do it, right? You name the child after dad. Elizabeth says, no, 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 this kid's John. Jehovah has been gracious. Now, those present, they… they they start to argue with her. It's like, oh, you don't get to name your own kid, Mom. Uh, they, they say, what are you doing, right? Everybody names the child after Dad. Uh, they actually try to pull rank on her if you look at the text. <laughs> they go to Zechariah thinking somehow she's trying to pull a fast one because he's deaf and dumb right now, right? And, and, and so they go to Zechariah, they sign to him, and he takes the pad and paper, whatever it is, the parchment and whatever writing utensil, and he says, his name is John. Jehovah has been gracious, with that, Zechariah's tongue is loosed. He's able to speak, and he speaks praising God. And so, so think about this for a moment. Nine months of no talking, no hearing. And, and you, you might think that he'd go the self-centered route, right? Tell everybody about his own experience. Maybe, maybe publish some memoirs in, in the Hebrew news or post on Facebook how awesome he is because of this experience he had, but no. No. He praises God. Nine months, I would assume, of seeking God. Right? The world's gone quiet for this guy. Nine months of praying, reflecting on the Scriptures, and, and, and then his tongue is loosed, and out of his mouth flows praise, praise of God. We're told that Zechariah is filled with the Holy Spirit, and he prophesies. He sings a song of prophecy, and while he touches on what his own child would be, the bulk of the song is all about Jesus, the one for whom his child would prepare the way. So look at the text with me. This passage breaks down into two sections, and I've tried to capture that on your outline. The first section I've titled Prophecy About Jesus, that's verses 68 to 75. The second section I've titled Prophecy About John, verses 76 to 79, though you'll see as we go through the passage that's not quite right because even the prophecy about John is really all about Jesus. So let's start with the first section. Let's read 67 through 75. His father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers, and to remember His holy covenant, the oath that He swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve Him without fear and holiness and righteousness before Him all of our days. And like Elizabeth, who was filled with the Holy Spirit when she prophesied about Jesus to Mary, here we see that the Holy Spirit inspires what Zechariah is about to say. And this This song, I trust you saw when I read it, is absolutely loaded theologically, right? This song is so dense. Literally every single line is an Old Testament allusion of some sort, and so I assure you we will barely scratch the surface of of what's here. Uh, That being said, I've tried to kind of capture the flow of what's going on in your outline, and the first point on your outline is, in fact, the main point of the psalm. The song, it's sort of your overarching rubric for the whole thing, and it's this, blessed be the Lord of Israel. Fundamentally, this is a song of praise, right? If you've been here through our Ephesians series, this is very similar to Ephesians 1, 3 through 11 that we spent so much time studying. This is the category heading, praise God. Everything that flows from this tells us why Zechariah is praising God. And so, the reason, or the ground, begins at the second part of verse 68. And in short, you could say it's this. He's praising God because God has redeemed His people by crushing the head of the serpent. Now, since the text says nothing about the serpent, I need to unpack that. He says, blessed be the Lord God of Israel for, there's your ground, He has visited us and redeemed His people, and has raised up for us a horn of salvation. Now, this is a little technical, but I do want to point out that throughout this first section, all of the verbs are past tense verbs, and you see that even in most of your English translations. And and each of these are what theologians refer to as prophetic pasts. In other words, He's speaking of events still in the future, but He's using a past tense because He is completely certain that they will come to pass. So, he praises God because God is going to visit and redeem His people by raising up this horn of salvation. And we need to spend some time on this because this is the only time we see the horn of salvation in the New Testament, and yet it's all over the place in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the horn is a picture of God's strength and power as a Savior. It's a picture of His strength and might, and it points to the reality that no one or no thing could possibly stand against Him in battle. See, see, this imagery was employed long before the imagery we might use of, say, military tanks or some awesome fighter jets or something like that if we were trying to show images of strength. This is the image of a large ox. And if you've never seen an ox, they're massive. The first time I saw an ox was at the Houston Livestock Show and Rodeo, and I didn't realize how big they got. You think of a steer, and they're not that big, right, because they usually slaughter them early enough where they're still good to eat. But an ox, it's an older, more mature animal, and they are massive. And so, this image is supposed to help you to think of looking at this beast with these horns and see his strength and quake before him. This is a picture of a great and powerful God who crushes his enemies, There's a number of places we could turn to look at this, but I want you to turn with me to 2 Samuel 22. Turn to 2 Samuel 22. This exact same song is repeated in Psalm 18, which should tell us something of its importance to show up twice in the Bible. So, turn over there, 2 Samuel 22. I won't read all of it because it's a long psalm, but I want to read enough to kind of Get us into the feel of what this is talking about. 2 Samuel 22. This is sang, sung by David after God delivered him from King Saul. So, starting in verse one, David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all of his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And he said, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield, there's your defense. And the horn of my salvation. He is my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior. You save me from violence. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. I am saved from my enemies. The waves of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of shale entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I called from His temple. He heard my voice, and my cry came to His ears. And then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations of the heavens trembled and quaked because He was angry." Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth glowing coals flamed forth from him he "'Bowed the heavens and came down, thick darkness under his feet. "'He rode on a cherub and flew. "'He was seen on the wings of the wind. "'He made darkness around him as canopy, thick clouds gathering of water. "'Out of the brightness before him, coals of fire flamed forth. "'The Lord thundered from heaven, and the Most High uttered his voice, "'and he sent out arrows and scattered them and lightning and routed them.'" And then the channels of the sea were seen, and the foundations of the world were laid bare at the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of the breath of His nostrils. Skip down to the last two verses, 50 and 51. For this, I will praise You, O Lord, among the nations, and sing praises to Your name. Great salvation He brings to His King and shows steadfast love or covenant love to His anointed, to David. And his offspring, or to his seed forever. So here's a picture of God, the mighty deliverer of his people, the great and powerful God who obliterates all his foes and will one day, once and for all, destroy all of his enemies. That's what this imagery of the horn of salvation is invoking. A little different from the stereotypical sweet baby Jesus in the manger sort of thing that we focus on at Christmas, right? This is a coming unbeatable warrior. A little baby who would be born in a manger is a horn of salvation. He had come to kick some tail, if I can put it bluntly. See, in Luke 1, the horn of salvation, which was raised up to save David in 2 Samuel, now comes through the house of David. So, Zechariah, look what he's doing. He's taking this biblical imagery of God as a conquering warrior of all of his enemies, and he's applying it directly to Jesus. Jesus is the one who would come through the house of David and stand as God's horn of salvation for his people. And he gives support for this. We see this in verses 70 to 71. Look back at the text. 70 to 71, He's talked about He's raised up a horn of salvation in the house of His servant David as He spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets from of old that we would be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Here's the support. God said it would happen. That's what He says for His support. God said we would be saved from our enemies and from all who hate us, right? And you see, these kinds of texts all over the place in the Old Testament. Certainly, David was a prophet. We just saw him speak this way in 2 Samuel 22, and you clearly see it all over the Psalms. In the Song of Moses, after God delivered His people from the hands of the Egyptians, the prophet Moses says things like this, "'The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God. I will praise Him.'" Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy and the greatness of your majesty. You overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. mean, how's that for Christmas language? Certainly, the latter prophets pick up on this. Think of Isaiah, for example, constantly referring to God putting down His enemies, Isaiah 59, 17 through 18, for example, he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak according to their deeds, so he will repay wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. Or what about Isaiah 63, 1 through 6? We don't like to use this kind of language, but this is the Word of God. Who is this who comes from Edom in crimson garments from Basra? Who, he who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone. And from the peoples, not one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation. My wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath. I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. If you've ever read the Chronicles of Narnia series, uh, a refrain that comes up about Aslan, who's depicting Christ, is, he's not safe. He's good, but he's not safe. See, this idea of God as a conquering warrior who will save his people by putting all of his enemies to shame is all over the Old Testament. The result then of this coming Davidic horn of salvation, according to Zechariah, who's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the result is that God is fulfilling these promises through Christ, through Jesus. Look at verses 72 to 73. We get to the result, I'll back it up a verse, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember His holy covenant, the oath that He swore to our father Abraham. Here He's tying all of this back to God's promise to Abraham, which I would argue goes all the way back to God's promise to Adam and Eve at the fall. But remember, Adam and Eve sinned. And God judged them, and as a result, death entered into the world, and sin would wreak havoc with all of human history, and fellowship with God was broken. But even in that moment, God made a staggering promise. God promised that one from the line of the woman, one from the seed of the woman, a son, would one day come and crush the head of the serpent, defeating God's enemy, and overturn the curse. This promise is then expanded upon when you get to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There God God promised to make them a great nation. He promised to be with them. He promised to bless them and that one from this line, same line, one from the seed of the woman would one day come and be a blessing to all the nations of the world. And so now, now when we understand this horn of salvation coming in fulfillment of these promises… Now it all starts to make sense, you see. One from this line would be a blessing to people from every tribe, nation, and tongue, as he would be the horn of salvation who would crush all of his enemies who are inspired by the one great enemy that is Satan himself through this horn of salvation, God would crush the head of the serpent, thus fulfilling all of His promises. And that we're on the right track is seen all the more when you look at the purpose statement found starting at the end of verse 73 through verse 75. So, look back at the text. 73 says, talks about showing mercy, remembering the holy covenant. Verse 73, the oath that He swore to our father Abraham. Here's the purpose statement. In order to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. See, this purpose statement coupled with the fact that all of this is fulfilling God's promises to Abraham demonstrates that he cannot be talking here primarily about God rescuing Israel from Rome. That's the rescue most of the people went to in their minds. They were looking for another King David, another King Solomon who would rise up, who would destroy Rome and set up an earthly kingdom right there in Jerusalem. But for those who had eyes to see, it was clear from the very beginning that Jesus was not at that point setting up his earthly kingdom. Remember Jesus' conversation with Pilate. Pilate says, oh, so you're a king, huh? And Jesus says, my kingdom's not of this world. And here we see this being pointed to from the very outset, even before his earthly ministry begins. Here the very purpose of Jesus crushing the head of the serpent, the purpose of the horn of salvation defeating his enemies is that His people, who are part of His heavenly kingdom that started at the inauguration of His ministry, not consummated until He comes again, the purpose is that His people might serve the Lord without fear in holiness and righteousness all of our days. See, now now we're ready to better understand the enemy that this horn of salvation has missile lock on. What enemy prohibits such worship? What enemy wants nothing more than to make sure that people stay in rebellion and never serve God in holiness and righteousness? I mean, Paul is clear on this, right? In Ephesians 6, he says, "...for our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places." Peter 2 was clear on this. He says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to devour someone. What does this enemy do? How does he wage war? Well, for one thing, he blinds people so that they can't see the goodness of God. 2 Corinthians 4, the God of this world, lowercase g, the God of this world, that is the devil, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. And let me just say at this point, if you're here this morning and you've never bowed the knee to King Jesus by trusting in His work on the cross for you, if you've not submitted your life to Him as King, this is where you live. You might not want to hear this, but this is a biblical worldview of your current state. It's not that you're too intellectual to believe or any other reason that many unbelievers come up with, it is because you're currently blinded by the devil. You're, you're actually on his team. That's the Word of God, not, not me, right? But here's the good news. You don't have to stay there. 1 John 3.8 says that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus, the horn of salvation, came to crush the devil and his works, and He did so by taking on flesh, by living the perfect life we could never live, by going to the cross where He bore all of our punishment, and in so doing, He not only provided forgiveness for our sin, which we were desperate for, but for those who believe, He set us free from our bondage to sin and the devil. And so I would plead with you, this Christmas season, if you don't know Christ, look to Jesus. Believe in Christ. Follow Him. See, this is what Christmas is all about. This is what we celebrate. This is is what we sing about. Think about the second song that we sang earlier. One of my favorite lines in Christmas songs. Come, thou rod of Jesse, free. How's this for theology? Come, thou rod of Jesse, free, thine own from Satan's tyranny. From depths of hell thy people save, and give them victory o'er the grave. Rejoice, rejoice. Amen. That's what Zechariah, even before Christ is born, is saying Jesus came to do. Jesus is the horn of salvation who came and crushed God's enemies. He crushed the head of the serpent and fulfilled God's promise to Abraham. And He did so for the very purpose that we not live under that tyranny any longer. He did so to break the power of sin in our lives. As Christians, we we may still sin, and we do, but we're no longer slaves to sin because Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil we can live without fear, no fear of death, no fear of judgment. We can live without fear, and we can walk, live in holiness and righteousness all the days of our lives. And that's a glorious thing. But That's not the end of Zechariah's song. No, he turns and he looks seemingly into the eyes of his baby boy, John, and prophesies about his own son, though even here, again, we're going to see that he's talking all about the Lord Jesus. Look at verses 76 through 79, and you, child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord and prepare His ways to give knowledge of salvation to His people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. Here Zechariah looks down at his own son and prophesies that John will be a prophet of the most high God. He tells us why, to what end, and it is to prepare the way for the Messiah right, to go before the Lord. And this is, of course, picking up on a previous prophecy from Isaiah 40 verse 3 where you read, a voice cries out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And I wish I had time to get into all the imagery of that because that's Exodus language, right? Right? The voice crying out in the wilderness will prepare the way for the Lord who will come, the horn of salvation, who will lead his people in a second exodus. He'll lead his people out of their slavery, namely slavery to sin. And John, of course, would not be the one who would forgive sin. Only Christ could do that, but he was the forerunner. He preached an important message of repentance, led people into a baptism of forgiveness, preparing them for this coming horn of salvation. And then Zechariah tells us why in verse 78. And in so doing, notice he's moved on from his own son and is again focused on Christ. John would prepare the way, preaching repentance, giving knowledge of salvation, precisely because in the tender mercy of God, the sunrise would visit from on high. Here again, he's prophesying about Jesus, but now notice he's switching metaphors, okay? The first half of the song Jesus is the horn of salvation crushing His enemies. Here He's the sunrise who will visit from on high. So, Jesus is the breaking in of light that will make the darkness flee. And you see this imagery in a number of places in the Old Testament. And so, Malachi 4, verses 1 through 2, we read, Behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. Or Isaiah 60, verses 1 through 3, arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the people, and the Lord will arise upon you, and His glory will be seen upon you, and the nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. See, this is the coming of the Lord Jesus. For in John 1, we read, in Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, John says, and the darkness shall not overcome it. So now Zechariah's picture of Christ coming into the world is that of a light breaking into a dark, fallen world. And there's certainly a link here with the horn of salvation, right? As both are set forth as the coming Messiah who would conquer his foe. Light is going to conquer darkness. The ox is going to crush his enemies. And his purpose statement is similar to the one we saw above too. Look back at verse 70. Here's the purpose. A sunrise will visit us from on high so that in order to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. Now, this is, this is Isaiah 9. This is a familiar passage. You don't need to turn there, but I'm going to read it to make this connection. Here's Isaiah 9. There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulon, the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them the light shined. To us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do it. See, through Jesus, God will destroy his enemies. Through Jesus, God would pierce the darkness of sin and death by the dawning of light of his Messiah. And the purpose is to give light to those who sat in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. Once we were all in darkness, and lived in the shadow of death. Now, because the light of Christ has shown, we walk the way of peace. And this is most certainly getting at the most important peace we can have, which is peace with God, that Jacob talked about last week. So let's end with this. Consider for a moment how this message is a huge encouragement for us at Christmas, and consider that while light's a good, common image at Christmas. Let's continue to decorate with them and tell the story. It's also considered that we might want to mix in decorating with a prominent horn around Christmas. Last week, Jacob showed us that we have some misunderstood themes when it comes to the Christmas season. I mean, all you got to do is think about the hyper-commercialized understanding of peace, the Christmas peace of secular Ideas, right? This is the emphasis on horizontal peace. Everyone's happy at Christmas time. Think of all the commercials. We all get along. The old Christmas brings out the best in everyone. But see, not only do we know that's wrong, right? All you got to do is go Christmas shopping on Christmas Eve and get tackled over the last Xbox that's there. Not only do we know that's wrong, we know that's not the peace that Scripture is talking about with the emphasis on vertical peace peace with God. So, we've already seen that Christmas imagery is often misguided. And in this passage, I think we see that not only are some of our Christmas images misunderstood, but for whatever reason, we tend to skip over some great Christmas images as well. I mean, when you think of Christmas, honest question, do you think of war? Perhaps we should, in light of this passage. Do you think of that baby in a manger as a coming warrior? Do you think of Him as the horn of salvation? Jesus is the horn of salvation. Jesus came to pulverize His enemies. He came to crush the head of the serpent. He came to drive out the darkness with the entrance of the true light. He came as the quintessential good who would conquer the quintessential evil. And this is good news for us. Because isn't this something that our minds are constantly working through in one way or another, whether you're a believer or an unbeliever? I mean, isn't the fulfillment of this something we long for? Can good finally conquer evil? I mean, think about it. Whether Christian or secular authors, why is it that so many of the best fiction stories are always good versus evil, light versus darkness? And why is it that good wins, right? Except on the rare exception when it doesn't just because so often it does that on occasion you can get an Academy Award by flipping it. But you watch those movies and it's like, that's terrible. I hate that. What a, ter- what a dreadful ending, right? We want to see good conquer evil and it's because deep down we all have a sense, at least a hope, that that will happen. That good will one day triumph over evil once and for all. And listen, in and through Christmas, we have more than a sense of that. The Bible shows us it's a reality. The world changed with the birth of Christ. The world changed when the horn of salvation came into this world. God the Son took on flesh, and He came, and He went to war. And in His war, He defeated sin, death, and the devil through the cross and resurrection. And He will come again one day, and He will grab all of His enemies and once and for all throw them into the lake of fire, where where they will be put down for all eternity. And then at that point, We as people who, praise God, have already experienced vertical peace, peace with God. We will experience an all-encompassing peace because every single one of God's enemies will be gone. And we'll enjoy perfect fellowship with God and one another for all eternity in a world that is completely unstained by the curse of sin. How's that for the Christmas story? Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Jesus. We thank You for this season where we step back and ponder the incarnation, His first coming into this world where He came on a mission. Lord, we rejoice in thinking about the fact that He came and did exactly what He came for. And we rejoice in the fact that You've given us the confidence to know that He will one day come again, and that He will indeed finish what He started, all for Your glory and our good. We thank You, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.